Father, it's a special time in our worship when we pause and we pray together. Father, if there's any obstacle in our personal life that would cause us not be able to pray effectively, I would ask you to help us deal with that right now. If there's something that has been inordinately worrying us or on our minds, something that has caused us to be preoccupied, something of a broken relationship with you or with another person, if there's a particular stress or particular challenge that we're facing, I ask you, Lord, to help us right at this moment to discard that and to put it at the foot of the cross and to come to you in prayer. Moment by moment, day by day, you minister to us. You take the joyful times that we have in life and you use those for us to give praise to you and you take the difficult times, which all of us have, and you give us opportunity to depend on you and for our faith to grow. And Lord, we can all look back over our lives and see how that's worked out. I thank you for your love. I thank you that you've reached into the darkness and you have put your arms around us and that you have loved us and shown grace and you've persevered with us when we have tried to wrestle free from your embrace. And you've promised, dear God, not to throw us away, not to get fed up with us, not to do what so often we do in other situations with other people ourselves. But you have promised to keep us in your embrace until we go to be with you eternally. What a beautiful promise. What a compelling kind of love. A love that can captivate our heart and capture our mind and Cause us, dear God, to walk anew with you every day of our life. And with all that being said, Lord, there's still times that we resist you. Paul calls it the quenching of the Spirit or the thwarting of the Spirit. And you've given your Holy Spirit to us, Lord, to influence us and counsel us and give us peace. And so often we forfeit those things as we resist you. I ask you to forgive us, Lord. Whatever it is in our life that needs to be forgiven, whatever that obstacle is, I pray that you would cause us to call out and ask for forgiveness. And as a part of that forgiveness, that we would turn from that sin and that we would do it no more. Lord, there's some sins that are pretty deeply embedded in us some things that are addictive and some things that we've done for a long time that are a habit. I pray you'd just unearth them also. I pray you'd break those things. And in the forgiveness that we experience, that the guilt would go away. Father, every time we look at the news and hear other people talk about what's going on, we realize how difficult our culture is and how difficult a world we live in today. 
At this very moment, Father, there are people in the streets of not one but more cities that are rioting and people are being hurt and losing their lives. And that is certainly not what you intended when you created Adam and Eve. For you put them into paradise, where people got along and where governments were selfless. We pray, dear God, for our country. We pray for spiritual renewal. We pray, dear God, that people would think more highly of you than they do of themselves. That they'd want a relationship with you more than they want a relationship that would be self-serving. So we pray, dear God, from the highest office to any office in this land, that your Holy Spirit would do a work and bring people to you. And we pray as you're doing that, Lord, that you would encourage us to be surrendered anew we might be a living witness in this world in which we live. That we might stand out not because of the harshness or strictness of our voice, but because of the love that we've experienced. That we might love others. We pray for those who are in military uniform. We pray for those who are teachers in our classrooms who are going into challenging situations. And pray your peace and your guidance. We pray for corporate America. And pray, dear God, it would be more than just trying to make a profit. But that the leaders of our companies in this land would care about the people that work for them. And that they might demonstrate that in a meaningful way. Father, there are a lot of things that need to change in our country. Let it begin with us. And let it ripple all throughout the land, we pray. Father, I want to thank you for our church. I want to thank you for the blessing of your Holy Spirit on us. I want to thank you, dear God, that you're doing the in-gathering and that you're the one who is calling us and you're the one who's encouraging us. I want to thank you that when we face challenges and even death, that you're there for us. I want to thank you. You give us opportunities to reach out to people when they're hurting. I pray, dear God, that you would build us from the inside out, that we might individually come closer to you, that we as a church might be a stronger witness in this community and even in this world. Thank you, dear God, for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 24th chapter. The Gospel of Matthew, the 24th chapter. And I'm going to begin reading with the 32nd verse. The Gospel of Matthew, the 24th chapter reading verses 32 through 39. I encourage you to look those verses up in your Bible and to put your finger in your Bible and let me know by raising your head that you're ready for us to go ahead. Please keep your Bibles open and follow along through the parable so you can see why I say what I say. 
Let your visual as well as your hearing be at work and let the Holy Spirit use those things. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would now speak to us, that you, dear God, would now bless what we're about to do. And if it needs to go somewhere that's not already planned, I pray through the power of your spirit, you take us wherever you want us to go. Please bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. For I ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Some years ago, Linda and I bought a lot, and there was a fig tree on that lot. Now, you all need to understand, the only thing I've ever seen growing up was grass. So that fig tree was a real novelty in my life. The fig tree was right on the property line. I never could quite tell if it was more on my property or my neighbor's, so he and I both picked from it. But the first year, as I was mowing grass in the spring, I started looking at that tree, and it looked dead. Part of it was actually rotten. It looked like it was 100 years old. And I started wondering about fig trees. I learned that they bear fruit for 12 or 15 years, and this tree wasn't dead because... As the spring wore on, little buds appeared, leaves started to pop out, and then little pieces of fruit started to appear. And for me, that was an absolute miracle. So as the fruit got a little larger, I would ride by on my riding lawnmower, and I would pick a piece of fruit. First, they were brown and fuzzy. You ever eaten one of those? They don't taste good. But what I figured out was, since I mowed the grass once a week, is I could pick a piece every week, and I'd know when it was ripe. Well, as we got to the first of the summer, the fruit got larger, it started turning purple, and it started tasting better. And as we got into the summer, I would stop under that fig tree and just sit there and eat four or five pieces because it was really good. And I learned a lesson that is so applicable here about the process of a fig tree. Well, what Jesus did is he used a fig tree for an example to explain a lesson he wants us to understand. And unlike myself in the Middle East, figs were raised domestically, they were raised commercially, and most folks understood about figs and fig trees. Jesus tells us an interesting thing back in Matthew, the 13th chapter. He says to us and to his disciples, The reason I teach in parable is because those who are not believers won't understand. And those who are believers will get it. Get ready, folks. You're going to get this. It's intended for us. He speaks in parable. I want you to follow along as I read. And I want you to listen very carefully because God is about to speak to us. Matthew, the 24th chapter, starting with the 32nd verse. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you look closely at 32 and 33, what you'll see is he's talking about the fact that Jesus is coming near. And here's how he says it. Jesus says, I want you to learn this parable. Well, the word learn in the Greek is a compound word, and what it means on the one hand is, I want you intellectually to get this, and on the other hand it means, and I want you to apply it in your life. I don't know about you all, but I went through elementary school and maybe even further than that and learned a lot of things that I never applied in my life. In fact, once I took the test and got out the door, That was the end of my application. Any of you identify with that? I also have found in my later life that I have learned things, and then I have relearned them, and then I have relearned them, and some of them I'm still learning over and over again. I can't quite get the application down. Wouldn't it be wonderful in heaven? We'll get the application down. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, I want you to understand this parable, and I want you to apply it. I want you to run it as a filter on your thoughts and what you think about the coming of the end of time. So he says, I want you to learn, and then he uses the word summer to refer to the second coming when he comes again. One of the few major prophecies that is yet to be fulfilled is the second coming of Christ. If you read through the scriptures, most of the prophecies have already been fulfilled. But we're awaiting that second coming, and now he's going to talk about that with his disciples and with us. And what he says is, there have been some signs. If you read through the beginning of chapter 24 up until verse 31, you'll see he gives us a random list of things. He says some of those signs are wars, and rumors of wars. Some of those things that are coming as signs are famines, earthquakes, tribulation, persecution, a falling away from the faith, and love growing cold. Well, that's 2,000 years ago he said that, and most of those things are going on at this very moment. Have you noticed? It seems to me that We're in pretty bad shape spiritually as a country and as a nation, as a world, as you look around. Love is not the prevailing thought and certainly not the prevailing gesture toward other people. Not when they hurt each other. Not when they're mean toward each other or angry with each other. And certainly not when they physically hurt one another. And as I speak... There are people who are not sitting in church, who are in the streets of their cities. All of these signs are around us right now. He says to us 
Those signs are there, and what they are intended to do is let us know that he's approaching the door and is about to walk in, meaning his second coming. Do you get the sense that Jesus is closer today than he's ever been? That's a fact. He's closer than the day you were born. He's closer to that door. And if he doesn't come back today, tomorrow he's going to be a step closer. That is a reality that you and I need to firmly get in our minds and know that it's not business as usual. That things aren't just going to keep on like they're going on right now, but that Jesus is going to come again. And Scripture teaches us when he walks through that door, he's going to raise the dead and assemble the living, and we're going to have a day of judgment. And he's going to take a look at our life, and he's going to take those of us who are saved by grace and put us in one group, and those who have not been saved by grace and put them in another group. He's going to judge all of us. He's going to look at the way we have taken what we were supposed to learn and how we applied it in our lives. A day of reckoning. I think if we had that as a little more vivid picture in our mind, it would control how we live our lives more effectively. He is coming again. If you look down at the 34th and 35th verses, he says, but nobody knows when I'm coming. He said, not only do the angels who are in the presence of God not know, he said, even the Son of God does not go. No, only God himself. God hasn't let anybody in on that. And by the way, when you read that somebody's got it figured out, no, they don't. When somebody wants to sell a book to you that explains how it's all going to happen, no, that's for profit. Nobody knows. If Jesus doesn't, I promise you nobody else does. So be aware of that reality. He says in verse 34, Truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Oh, how theologians have wrestled with that one verse. It obviously does not mean that all of the signs were going to take place before that generation that Jesus was a part of died. It can't mean that. Because there's some signs that were not completed then and still haven't been. There's going to come a time when the stars are going to fall from the sky. There's going to come a time when the world will come to an end as Jesus approaches There's going to be a time before all of that when the gospel will have been preached throughout the world. Right now, there are 197 countries in our world. When I read that verse about generations, I'm not sure if he's talking about the 197 we have today or what we may have tomorrow because it keeps changing. So I think he's speaking in a broad, general way. When you look at the word generations in the Greek, it's an interesting word. It doesn't mean what you and I typically think about. We talk about our generation. That's people who are born that are approximately our age going through life as we go through life. That's not specifically what the word means. In some cases, it means race. 
And there are those who read that verse and say, well, the Jewish race is not going to come to an end until all these things have happened. That may be the interpretation. It may also be to say to us, in every generation, there are going to be signs. And God uses those signs to inform us, to get our attention. And the things that are going on are going to happen during our generation will be adequate to help us see those signs. I do know this. There are plenty of signs around us today. There's adequate information for us to be alerted and for us to know. He says to us, heaven and earth are going to pass away. Now, in the very beginning, didn't he make heaven and earth and Adam and Eve to live forever? But now he says to us, all that's going to come to an end. I thought about an example of why that has to come to an end. God made things perfect when he first made them. And you and I know that that perfection was broken when Adam and Eve said, I want to do this my way. I don't want to do it your way, God. And the relationship was broken. My mama, I hope she forgave me for this. My mom had taken some crystal and some porcelain figurines she had and she had boxed them up when I was born. I think she knew what she was in for. I never knew they were boxed up. I didn't even know they existed. I went off to private school. My mother, thinking I was out of the house most of the time, started unboxing some of those things. And Daddy had a beautiful desk sitting against the wall in the living room, and he had this three-layered shelf above it. And Mom took these beautiful little figurines, ballerinas and all sorts of pretty little dainty things that she'd had since she was a girl, and she put them on those three shelves. I came home from school. I walked in the door, and I sat my suitcases down, and I looked over, and I saw those figurines. I mean, I knew our living room, and they'd never been there before. So I walked over to them. And as I got to them, Mom called from the kitchen, and she said, Sonny, don't touch the... And I dropped one on the desk. It broke into all kinds of pieces. And I looked at it, and she said, figurines. Well, there was no way I could fix that. I wanted to. Oh, my goodness, when I found out where they came from, it broke my heart what I had done. Mom gave that to me, by the way, that particular one, all busted up. I think I still have it as a reminder. (laughs) But, you know, in my heart of hearts, what I wanted to do is I wanted to fix that. I wanted to put all those pieces together and and take all those stress marks out of it and, and have it whole again. But there was no way I could do that the fracture that has taken place between you and God and me and God is like that figurine. You may be sorry for what you have done or what you're doing. You can't fix it. You can't repair it so perfectly that it will be acceptable to a God of perfection. He will always see the cracks. 
he'll always see the residue of glue. It's broken. So God had a better idea. He sent his son Jesus. And Jesus died on a cross to fix us so we're acceptable to God. Do you understand? Well, so now we're in the process. We've already been claimed by Christ. We're his. If you know Jesus, you belong to him and you're going to heaven. But have you looked around at what's going on in our world? You and I get out of bed and I say good morning to the Lord every morning and I mess up before the day's over. I look at the weather and we have all kinds of bad things happening and people in floods and earthquakes and all sorts of things happening. When Jesus walks through the door and comes to be with us, he is going to redeem all of nature and us. He's going to fix it all. So the heavens and the earth are going to pass away. And in the revelation, he says to us, I'm going to give you a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to restore in perfection all of his creation. So when Jesus tells us that the heavens and the earth are going to pass away, that's precisely what's going to happen. But what does he follow that with? Almost in the same breath. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You know, there's only one thing in our whole human experience that you can really trust. It's never going to change. That's the Word of God. When God tells us something, you can trust it. I wonder if any of you remember this. I used this in our inquirer's class to show the significance of the Word of God. When I was a boy growing up in Florida, if you committed rape, do you know what the punishment was? They took your life. Period. Today, there's first degree, second degree, and third degree rape, and you go to jail for first degree rape and are let out after six or seven years, typically. The law of our land is not constant. It changes with our opinion. We get a consensus in our law, then changes to something else. Well, folks, if a loved one of mine had committed a rape and their life was taken and the law changed, I wouldn't think that's very fair. Wouldn't you like to have some stability in life, things you can trust? Well, that's what our Bible is. When you open your Bible and you start to read and God starts to speak to us, you can stake your life on it. He never changes. He is God. He is immutable. He loves us and he tells us the truth. You've been hearing us every Sunday talk about the Berean Bible study model that we're about to begin that starts on the 8th of September. One of the designs is that we want to get us into the Word of God that never changes, and we want to feed on that so you and I know the truth and can stake our lives on it and modify the way we live to conform with His Word so that we will be more like what He wants us to be. That's the purpose. That was a paid commercial. 
Y'all come, you hear? But it's the truth. It's the only thing in our whole life, our whole existence that you can really trust. And what he's saying is all the rest of this is going to pass away, but not my word. What I said is going to be true, and I am going to walk through the door. I am coming back again. If you look on down at 36 through 39, what he's really saying in those verses is, get ready, you be ready, know that I'm approaching the door, and live as if the doorknob is turning and I'm about to walk in a second time to my creation. It says nobody knows. Nobody. So live like his hands on the doorknob. And then he gives an interesting example. He goes back to Noah. I encourage you, if you haven't read that accounting in Genesis, go back and reread it. I've done that, and it's a shocking kind of statement. You can read through it and say, golly, they built an ark. Everybody got in the ark that God wanted in the ark. The water started to rise, and he preserved some of his creation. There's a whole lot more to it than that. He tells us in this verse that people were eating and drinking, getting married, being given in marriage, until the very moment that Noah and his family and those select animals went into the ark. Sometimes I look around, don't you, and say, boy, that's going on right now. Jesus is about to come through the door (coughs) and there are so many people who are preoccupied with what's going on in life. So absorbed by it, all their resources are poured into it emotionally, financially, physically. And we don't realize, those folks, that Jesus is about to come again. Part of our job as the church is to let them know Not to scare them by talking so much about the signs, but to let them know about the love of God, about the grace of God, about how he has loved us and how they need to be sensitive to his presence that he might love them. And that's your job and that's my job. That's our job when we're out in public. It's our job when we're with our own families to let other people know. Are you doing that? Does the fact that he's about to walk through the door change the way you live? Not that just that you would be ready, but that you would tell other people so they can get ready. I think that's what those signs are all about. I think it also suggests there needs to be a reordering in some of our lives. The obvious one, who's first in your life? Who do you live for? You live for yourself or do you live for God? If you live for God, things are very different in the way we live. So if you reorder your life and you keep on a daily basis putting God first, it'll dictate how you think and how you feel and how you behave. And and self won't be so important. He'll be important. And serving him will become just absolutely part of your life. And it'll probably change how we deal with our families. You want to fix what's going on with the family in our country? You do it in your family. I'll do it in mine. Let's love our families. Let's be an example to them. 
Let's encourage them spiritually. Let's teach them the Word of God. We're told in the Old Testament that's what God wants us to do. So when you start reprioritizing your life, and you must do this, I think, on a daily basis, you put God first, and you surrender to Him and live for Him. You put your family second, and you model, and you teach, and you be there for Him, and you love Him, and you give for Him, and you forgive Him. And then you go about the other things of life. that a tall order? It's not. Holy Spirit's already in us, ready to help us do just that. He's just waiting on us to say, please, Lord, help us reorder our life. As I look at the parable, I'm reminded of a very simple truth. I don't know when, nor do you, when Jesus is coming, but he's coming. Two questions. You got a room reserved in heaven? If you don't have, and you're still trying to put the figure mean back together, please say something before you leave to me. And let's talk about it. The second thought. If you really believe he's at the door and he's about to walk through, doesn't that suggest our lives on a daily basis do need to be reordered? You all here? I'm preaching to myself, folks. I hope you got something out of it. Let's pray together. Father, I'm always impressed by how much you love us. You didn't just put us here and let us go through this life and let things happen and not be there for us, but instead, dear God, you have preserved your words. And the words of Jesus now resonate in our heads with the reminder he's coming again and what we're to do between now and then. That's a sign of your love for us individually. Your encouragement to us. A wake-up call that you give to us. Thank you for loving us so much. Thank you in the very precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. The Apostle Paul said, I do the very things I, can't you just see him? Don't want to do. You been there? When you walk down this aisle and we go back out there into the world, don't do those things anymore. Let the Holy Spirit have freedom to work in your life. Let him transform you. That's what he wants to do. That you might experience his love and walk in his power. God be with you and God keep you, my friends. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.